All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Shiva Prabhupada and Ma Om Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prasaya Bhutale Shrimati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Jinamane. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gorvani Kachani Nirvasesis Nivani Paskatyade Satarane. Bandeham Shri Guru Shri Yuta Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha. Shri Rupam Sadvajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Stam Sajivam. Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam. Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha. May 13th, 2020, and from Hilo, North Carolina, over Zoom. And we're going to be reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 20, Lord Vishnu's Appearance in the Sacrificial Arena of Mars Prithu, Text 18. Prashantam Padayo Premna Prashantam Swena Karmana Shatakratum Parishvadya Videsham Vissasarjaha Touching 
touching. Touching. The feet. The feet. na. In ecstasy. In ecstasy. Reditum. Ashamed. Ashamed. His own. Karmana. By activities. Shatakratum. King Indra. Parishvajya. Embracing. Vidvesham. Envy. Visat Sarja. Gave up. Ha. Of course. Of course. Uh, this is this verse is okay. this verse is one of the to me extraordinary verses in the Bhagavatam that attributes envy to a pure devotee in this case not only a pure devotee but a Shaktivesh avatar Srila Prabhupada's translation and purport as King Indra was standing by, he became ashamed of his own activities and fell down before King Prithu to touch his lotus feet. But Prithu Maharaja immediately embraced him in great ecstasy and gave up all envy against him for his having stolen the horse meant for the sacrifice. Srila Prabhupada's purport. There are many cases in which a person becomes an offender to the lotus feet of a Vaishnava and later becomes repentant. Here also we find that although the king of heaven Indra was so powerful that he accompanied Lord Vishnu, he felt himself a great offender for stealing Prithu Maharaj's horse that was meant for sacrifice. An offender at the lotus feet of a Vaishnava is never excused by the Supreme Personality of Godhead. There are many instances illustrating this fact. Ambarish Maharaj was offended by Durvasa Muni, a great sage and mystic yogi, and Durvasa also had to fall down at the lotus feet of Ambarish Maharaj. Indra decided to fall down at the lotus feet of King Prithu, but the king was so magnanimous of Vaishnava that he did not want Maharaj Indra to fall down at his feet. Instead, King Prithu immediately picked him up and embraced him, and both of them forgot all the past incidents. Both King Indra and Maharaj Prithu were envious and angry with each other. I'm going to read this again. Both King Indra and Maharaj Prithu were envious and angry with each other. But since both of them were Vaishnavas, or servants of Lord Vishnu, it was their duty to adjust the cause of their envy. This is also a first-class example of cooperative behavior between Vaishnavas. In the present days, however, because people are not Vaishnavas, they fight perpetually among one another and are vanquished without finishing the mission of human life. There is a great need to propagate the Krishna consciousness movement in the world so that even though people sometimes become angry and malicious towards one another, I'm going to read that again, even though people sometimes become angry and malicious toward one another. Because of their being Krishna conscious, such rivalry, competition, and envy can be adjusted without difficulty. Sprashantam parayo premna vriditam swena karmana shatam kraktum purishvajya vidvesham vishasarjaha As King Indra was standing by, he became ashamed of his own activities and fell down before King Prithu to touch his lotus feet. It's interesting. It doesn't say in the Sanskrit he fell down. It just says he touched the feet. So Prabhupada adds that. But Prithu Maharaja immediately embraced him in great ecstasy and gave up all envy against him for his having stolen the horse meant for sacrifice. Well, 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 how is it? 
possible that great Vaishnavas will feel envy? How, how is that possible? You know, we have this idea often that you know, Vaishnavas should be perfect in the sense particularly of never feeling envy. We have Bhaktivinoda who writes that there's only two rules in Vaikuntha, Goloka, Vaikuntha. Have prema, have love, and don't have any malice, don't have any envy. Uh, but Prabhupada uses the word uh, malicious, yes, he does here. Yes? They sometimes may get angry and malicious. So he's talking about malice. He's not just talking about like sort of the the loving, friendly envy that exists, say, between groups of gopis. He's not just talking about that. I mean, he's he's talking about out and out malice. Malice is when we wish the other harm. There, there's no way to sugarcoat it when we're we're wanting that person to suffer. We, we, we delight in the harm. Yeah. That's the opposite of spirituality. But Srila Prabhupada is here talking about Vaishnavas. Even though people sometimes become angry and malicious towards one another because of their being Krishna conscious. Such rivalry, competition, and envy can be adjusted without difficulty. And earlier, both King Indra and Maharaj Pritchard were envious and angry with each other, but since both of them were Vaishnavas, that's extraordinary. You know, we, we often have this idea that if I'm a devotee, or if I'm a pure devotee, Arguably, we could say Indra is not a pure devotee, but Prithimara certainly is. That uh, such feelings of envy and malice, rivalry, will not arise. But they may sometimes arise. What to do? What to do? So we're going to look at how is this? that this happens, and then we're going to look at what to do from two different points of views, from the point of view of forgiveness and the point of view of apology. So, Srila Prabhupada writes there that Indra was so powerful that he was accompanying Lord Vishnu. I mean, this whole pastime is fascinating, in, in this part of it, particularly because without any doubt, Indra instigated this problem. He was the one who adopted false sannyas dress and stole the horse. I mean, Prithu's son then went after him to kill him. So there was some fault on Prithu's part. But it was instigated by Indra. Indra was the main person at fault here. And yet, in one sense, you could say Lord Vishnu appeared to take Indra's side because he asked Pritya Maharaj not to do the 100th horse sacrifice. I mentioned this before. Instead of asking Indra to graciously let Pritya do his 100th horse sacrifice, he asked Pritya to be gracious and let Indra be the 100th horse sacrifice person and be satisfied with being the 99th horse sacrifice person. Uh, one reasonable assumption is that he asked Prithu rather than Indra because Prithu was more magnanimous and more advanced. Just like sometimes if we're dealing with two children, we may ask the older child to be more magnanimous even if the younger child was at fault, which if done repeatedly will annoy the older child, of course. But here that's what the Lord is doing. He's asking the senior person in terms of realization to be magnanimous. But the Lord is coming with Indra. Indra is coming as an associate of the Lord. I mean, in one sense, he's coming as an associate of the Lord because if the Lord brings Indra, Prithu Maharaj is more likely to forgive him. 
But still, I mean, wow. Wow, I mean, walking along with the Lord. That's pretty extraordinary. I mean, if I saw, if I saw any of the devotees I know walking along with the Lord, traveling with the Lord, I'd be a little awestruck. Whoa. <laughs> what a senior advanced devotee. And Prabhupada said, we may be that powerful that we're an associate of the Lord. And, and many of us may think, uh, no matter how much we pretend to be humble or try to act humble, that, well, I'm an associate of the Lord. The pujaris may think, I'm always dressing the Lord, the book distributors, well, I'm always distributing the books, I'm always collecting the donations, I'm preaching the Bhagavatam, or whatever it is. We have some way of thinking that I'm an associate of the Lord, I'm a devotee. But here, Srila Prabhupada is reiterating what is stated all over the place. We have to be kind to jivas too, especially other jivas who worship the Lord. I remember seeing a sign in a Christian education convention. I used to go to them once a year when I was running a Gurukula. There was a big sign that said, everyone who loves Jesus should love everyone who loves Jesus. I mean, we can think of now people are screaming about the Muslim terrorists, but there's been a lot of Christian terrorists. You know, there were the Protestant-Catholic wars in Northern Ireland, and of course there were the atrocities, horrible atrocities done in the Spanish Inquisition, uh, also by the Spaniards and Portuguese, particularly in Central and South America, against the native peoples, uh, and then the Christian atrocities against the Muslims and so forth. So there's, uh, you know, a horrible violence we could delineate it for a long time of one religion against another and within a religion. You know, within a religion, sometimes it's worth within a religion, just like sometimes fighting is worth with, worse within a family. So even within a religion, you know, you've got the wrong part of the religion, you have the wrong guru, you know, you're not explaining this text properly. You know, we have these two branches of the Sri Vaishnavas, one that says that our attaining liberation is dependent on our own effort, and one that says it's totally dependent on the Lord's effort. One branch says that Lakshmi Devi is Vishnu Tattva, and one branch says that Lakshmi Devi is Jiva Tattva, and they have their own, their own branches, and they, they fight over this. So this concept that in addition to being an associate of the Lord, one has to treat other living entities nicely, seems to be a very difficult one. I was mentioning the other day, I don't remember, I'm giving so many classes in so many places, I don't remember exactly where I said it, but it was, um, one gentleman had compiled a list of the most influential people in history, and he had put Jesus Christ as number three. So one well-known Christian speaker asked the list compiler, why did you put Jesus Christ at number three instead of number one? And he said, well, if Christians really loved their enemies the way Jesus taught, I would have put him at number one because then it would have transformed the world. So this concept of loving our enemies, you know, what happens is, when we offend Vaishnavas, first of all, sometimes we don't realize we've offended Vaishnavas. Sometimes we think we're doing the right thing and we're just preaching Krishna consciousness, um, we're just doing our service. You notice the words just there. And if somebody's offended by that or hurt by that, that's their problem. Uh, we, we may be just unaware that we're hurting people or we may be aware but we kind of brush it aside as not so important. Other times we're quite aware. We're, we're very conscious that we're criticizing somebody, that we're impeding that person's service. You know, I'm not going to do anything to support their work and their service. I'm going to make their service as difficult as possible. 
I mean, I, I just had somebody say that to me uh, two days ago. You know, I, I'm not going to do anything to support those devotees and support their service. And uh, even something that not only would have cost them nothing, but would have given them something. You know, so I, I'm not going to support these devotees in their service, even if it means that I would gain some benefit from doing so. That I would gain some, in this case, it would be a financial benefit. That even though I get some financial benefit from assisting these devotees in service, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I want them to have difficulty. So sometimes we're quite aware that we desire ill for other persons. And sometimes even in our thoughts, you know, we'll become aware that we're thinking, you know, I, I hope their marriage falls apart, or I hope they get sick, or I hope they get fired, uh, you know, something like that. I hope they get criticized. I hope something bad happens to them. We become aware that we have this sort of malicious thought. Huh? And in those cases, when we are aware, uh, we may, what they call in English, they have a saying, give the dog a bad name and hang it. In other words, I criticize the person that I am malicious towards so that it becomes okay for me to be malicious toward them. And again, I've run into this where somebody will be speaking ill of another devotee or, you know, wishing ill for another devotee and they'll say, well, they're not really a devotee. They're really a pretender. They're really a demon, uh, so forth and so on. And that happens very often between one religion and another or between different parts of a religion. Um, and it happens even within the same faith. That we will say, well, that person isn't really a devotee. And therefore it's okay that I have malice toward them. Forgetting that Jivara Swarupaya Krishnaranicha does. Mamayamsa Jivaloke Jivabhutasanatana. That everybody is ultimately a devotee of the Lord. And that being malicious towards any living entity is just a very bad idea. It doesn't make the Lord happy. And the, the example is, is just so simple that I think anybody can immediately understand it, that you're not going to be able to have a good relationship with people if you are malicious toward their children. It, it, just, it just doesn't work. And it doesn't matter if their children are criminals or drug addicts or whatever. You know, you could be honest and say, you know, your son's in federal prison for, you know, drug dealing, and the parent would say, well, yeah, that's true. But if you say, well, I hope he rots in prison, then the parent would become offended. You know, so even if the child is, you know, has a problem, uh, still, the parent doesn't appreciate maliciousness toward their child. Uh, it's just... It's something that's very, very easy to understand. So Krishna doesn't like maliciousness towards his parts and parcels. The mood in the spiritual world is exactly the opposite. I mean, there's, there's certainly some competition and rivalry to please Krishna, but the mood we were just reading on the disappearance day of Ramananda Roy, how the gopis are happy, including Srimanti Radharani, when Krishna is enjoying with another gopi, which from a, you know, our material perspective doesn't make sense. Children don't feel happier when the parent's with another child, you know, or the wife doesn't feel happier when the husband's with his mistress. You know, it, it just, it's, not, it's not the way we operate in this world, generally. Generally it's not the way, sometimes, but generally not. But that's the mood in the spiritual world, that the devotees are always trying to push each other forward to be with Krishna. They're, they're happier, they feel millions of times happier when Krishna's enjoying with someone else. There's, there's a link. You know, part of the reason they feel this way is they don't feel someone else. <laughs> they feel that we're all connected. They feel, you know, they feel others' happiness as their own happiness, not just theoretically, but practically. Uh, and we have the story of Dhruva Maharaj, also here in the fourth canto, 
where when Saruchi offended him, he was not yet a great Vaishnava, and still it ruined her. The, the maliciousness that she and her son had towards Druva ended up uh, destroying them. But we see here in today's verse and purport that we may sometimes have, have feelings of envy and malice towards others. We shouldn't be surprised. Now, Prabhupada talks about in the Bhagavad Gita that the devotee doesn't act on their on material desires even though the desires may be present. If we expect that Krishna consciousness means that freedom from material desires means that no material desires ever enter into the body and mind, uh, we're, we're not going to achieve that. If we're thinking, well, right now these desires enter into my body and mind, so I can't help the fact that I act on them, I'll stop acting on them when they stop entering. Uh, that's not going to work. The material desires, even to this point, even malice, will enter into the body and mind sometimes. Prabhupada uses the word sometimes. They will. So what do we do? Well, and first of all, we shouldn't be so surprised. We shouldn't be so surprised if they enter into other people who are Vaishnavas, even at the level of Prithu Maharaj. We shouldn't be so astonished. Oh my God! An intimate associate of the Lord. And yet they some malice has entered, you know... We, this is the Bhagavatam, and this is what we're seeing. So this is, we, we shouldn't be shocked. <laughs> and if it enters into us, we shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't immediately think, well, you know, I'm a failure. I, I guess my Krishna consciousness is a failure because I've had this malicious thought, this malicious desire towards someone else. So what do we do about it? Well, let's sort of say what we don't do. We don't act on it. Uh, we don't uh, say it. I mean, here Indra actually acted on it and went and stole the horse. And uh, Prithu had his son try to kill Indra, so they, they acted on it. So we don't act on it. At the same time, we don't repress it. We don't say, no, no, I don't have any malice. I don't, I don't. I'm a good person. I, that's not going to work. Uh, attachment and aversion. So aversion is equally damaging as attachment. As Krishna says, one who is above the modes of nature, he defines in 1422-25, to one who does not hate illumination, attachment, and delusion when they appear, nor long for them when they disappear, remaining neutral, knowing that the modes alone are active. So we observe and say, oh, some malicious desire, some malicious thought has entered into my body and mind. This is expected for somebody within the modes of nature, and I just will watch it until it dissipates. However, sometimes, and Prabhupada again uses the word sometimes here, uh, we're not successful at remaining in this observation mode, observation mood, and this neutrality above the modes of nature, and we may indeed act maliciously. We may speak maliciously, or we may act maliciously, and, and so forth. Uh, we would like to think that we never do that, but the reality is, is different. If the reality is different for Indra, who's a personal associate of the Lord, if the reality is different for Prithu, who's a Shaktivesh avatar of the Lord, then, my dear friends, the reality is going to be different, probably, for each of us. So, what about when we have acted maliciously? Uh, well, let's look first at when people act maliciously towards us, because I think that's a lot easier to deal with. Uh, we've all had some experiences that somebody's acted maliciously towards us. In other words, someone has acted towards us not only in a way that was hurtful, but intentionally hurtful, where their intention was obviously to cause us some kind of grief, as Indra's stealing of the horses was a very intentional, malicious act. It was a, a willful act, where he knew that it was going to be harmful to Prithu. So, in this case, we are asked to be forgiving. And I have a whole seminar on forgiveness. I know Mahatma has a multi-part seminar on forgiveness it's not something I'm going to be able to adequately cover in five or ten minutes. So we're going to just really summarize. Forgiveness, this first of all, does not mean condoning. 
it doesn't mean that I say what the other person did was not malicious. Nobody is saying here that Indra's behavior was dharmic. When Prahlad Maharaj forgave Hiranyakashipu, he said, my father committed very grave offenses to you, my lord, and to me. So Prahlad wasn't, I mean, he was only five, but he wasn't a fool. Forgiveness also has a different meaning when you're in the justice system. So if you are working in government, you're a police officer, you work, you know, as a judge, as a jury, in that sense, one is supposed to give out punishment to criminals under certain circumstances. And in the, within the context of government and the justice system, forgiveness means where you tell a person that they've done something wrong, but they either will not get any punishment or they'll get some kind of a reduced punishment. And Prahlad Marsh, there's a discussion between Prahlad Marsh and Bali Marsh, I can't remember the source right now, where Prahlad Maharaj says that the king should sometimes forgive people. He should forgive people who've done a first offense. He should forgive people who are repentant, forgive people just sometimes to set a good example. And any good judge in any country, in any justice system, will sometimes not give out punishment to a guilty party or give a lesser punishment to a guilty party for seeing that in that particular case, rectification is not necessary, the person has already rectified, or maybe punishment would make it worse, or they may have some alternate means of rectification. So we're not talking about, when we talk about forgiveness in a general sense, we're not talking about the kind of forgiveness that occurs in government, because that always confuses people. People say, what about justice? What about justice? Justice is for God and for government, who represents God. I mean, and it may be, you know, like for parents with children, teachers with students, employers with employees, someone who represents God for people. But if somebody offends me, I'm not the Justice Department, I'm not God. It's not my business to give out justice. So when I forgive somebody who had malice toward me, that doesn't mean that I'm condoning what they did. And it has nothing to do with whether or not that person might profit from a punishment given by a proper authority. It's a different topic. So, in my own research, I've isolated four aspects of forgiveness. The first is that we give the other person what we call due process. In other words, there's many times that we may be convinced that someone has acted maliciously towards us, and we're wrong. Just like sometimes people may be convinced that we've acted maliciously toward them, and they're wrong. I mean, right? It happens. Somebody will say, you did this, and you did that, and you did the other thing, and we didn't do those things. Or maybe we did those things with a mood of being helpful, and the other person experienced it as malice when that was not at all anything in our motivation. So in a similar way, if people appear to be malicious towards us, we should take the time and energy to find out the whole story. And this step is often just not done. Often just not done. I mean, the other day I had somebody who revealed to me that they were upset with me over something I had done, oh, 25 years ago, and their interpretation of what I had done was markedly different from my reasons for doing what I had done. So it was, you know, what was driving me, what were my thought processes, and what that other person understood as what was driving me were complete opposites. And when she said, you know, this thing really bothered me, and I said, well, this is why I did it, and then she had a whole different view. But she had never asked me, you know, why did you do that? She had a story about why I did it, and her story was the truth to her. So we all do this. I do this. Every conditioned soul does this. And to take the time to find out the truth. Now, 
If we take the time to find out the truth, and after doing that research, we are convinced that that person is guilty of malice, then the next, if they're not guilty of malice, of course, then uh, that's it. We, we let it go, and we just, you know, then we <laughs> apologize. I'm sorry that I was upset with you over nothing. Then the next step, if they were guilty of malice, is taking shelter of Krishna, because the reason we don't forgive people is that we're afraid that the person is threatening us in some way, that their behavior is threatening to us, and if we forgive them, we will be vulnerable. So we take shelter of Krishna. Krishna is meeting all of my needs. Krishna is meeting all of my needs perfectly all of the time. I don't depend on this other being as a means of being safe, as a means of being happy, as a means of finding meaning in my life. And sometimes that is hard. <laughs> sometimes it seems that another person's behavior is threatening our whole existence. You know, sometimes it, it just, you know, our employer or in a marriage or whatever, it, you know, it may just seem that their bad behavior is undermining everything about our life. But it, that's not the fact. So we take shelter of Krishna. Then once we take shelter of Krishna, we have let go of our drive to try to, you know, make the other person suffer. It, it's gone. Because that, that's now Krishna's business. That Krishna's taking care of me. He's taking care of the situation. But we still want the person to be rectified, but no longer to keep us safe or to vindicate us, to show that we were actually right because they are suffering. We want them to be rectified for their own happiness, and then we can say, my dear Lord, please let this person become rectified in a joyful way. Uh, so that's the third step. Please let this person become rectified in a joyful way. And then the fourth step is asking Krishna, why did you sanction this happening to me? Because Mari Krishna Rakeke, Rake Krishna Marike, nobody can hurt us unless Krishna authorizes it. And no one can help us unless Krishna authorizes it. So if somebody hurt me, Krishna has allowed it, and if Krishna has allowed it, he must have some purpose there, some loving purpose for me. So what is it, Lord, you want me to learn? So the first thing is to give the other person due process, not to assume that they were malicious, to actually investigate. If they were indeed malicious, to take shelter of Krishna as the source of all of my security and safety, then desiring for the other person, may you learn in a joyful way, and then asking Krishna, what is my lesson? And this way we cut this subtle binding between us and the other person. When we fail to forgive another person, when we hold on to a feeling of malice toward them, uh, anger and fear toward them as a way of self-preservation generally, then we're emotionally connected to that person. Anyone whom we are emotionally connected with, uh, we will end up in some karmic situation. And when we're negatively emotionally connected, the karmic situation we will end up with will most likely not be very pleasing. So this system of forgiveness, due process, Krishna meets my needs, may you learn through joy, and what is my lesson, cuts this, this binding cord. All right, well, what about when we act maliciously? And I think that's a lot harder. We generally think that the ratio of people acting maliciously towards me and me acting maliciously towards others is greatly skewed in my favor. So I may think it's, you know, 100 to 1 that, that for every 100 acts of malice done towards me, maybe I do 1. If I'm really proud, I think I do 0. So what we need to do then is what Indra's doing, and that is to apologize. That is to apologize, to humble ourselves. Um, I've read a couple of very, very good books about apology. Uh, the one I'm referring to now is by John Cador called Effective Apology. And uh, it's, in, in it he talks about, you know, what's the purpose for apology. I think many times when we apologize, it's like a very young child who just simply wants to get out of timeout. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> and their, their purpose is just to get their privileges back. So 
It's not that a, a good apology is not done for our own redemption. And if we start crafting an apology, verbal, written, with the idea that I don't want to suffer for offending a Vaishnava, I don't want to displease the Lord because I'll get in trouble, we'll stop. Stop. Apology should come from compassion. The word compassion literally means to suffer with. An apology should come from empathy, not sympathy, but empathy. That we really want to feel the other's uh, pain as our own. That's one of the hallmarks of spiritual behavior, is that I feel others suffering as if it's mine. I want to connect with that person's suffering that were due to my behaviors. That's my purpose. Whether it redeems me or not, whether I get forgiving, forgiven or not, I want to reconnect with them because my act of, of malice disconnected me from them and ultimately disconnected me from Krishna. So I want to reconnect with Krishna, not for my own benefit, but I want to reconnect with Krishna by uh, doing my best to reconnect with this jiva in empathy. And as many people say many times, that I have to care more about the relationship than being right. I mean, it's an off-repeated uh, slogan or cliche, but wow, is it true. It's really true. Because a real apology means that I have to say, I was wrong, not just in my behavior, but in my intent, and or, or in my lack of connection. So what I'm valuing is the connection, and we can tell when we get an apology that's really about the other person wanting to feel good about themselves again, or if it's an apology because the person really cares about us. I mean, we, we can immediately spot it. But making a real apology that comes from this desire for connection is very difficult. The way John Cotter, um summarizes apology, he said, is to accept responsibility for an offense or grievance and express remorse in a direct, personal, and unambiguous manner, offering restitution and promising not to do it again. I'm going to read that again. To accept responsibility for an offense or grievance and express remorse in a direct, personal, and unambiguous manner, offering restitution and promising not to do it again. And he came up with a mnemonic, of of five R's, five R's, recognition, responsibility, remorse, restitution, and repetition, that I will not repeat it again. So, recognizing what I did wrong, and the wrong may not be, you know, that I didn't return your whatever. The wrong may be that I betrayed your trust, I disappointed you, I, I acted in a way that you felt foolish, you felt small, you felt insignificant, I wasn't respectful of your boundaries. I mean, you want to get underneath the particular action and go to, you know, what was the harm done? What was the malice done? I mean, it wasn't just that Indra kept stealing the hundredth horse, is that he wanted to keep Prithu down in order to keep himself up. And he was thwarting Prithu's desire for service and connection with the Lord out of his own position. So it's not just the, the action externally, but what's the, what's the motive to recognize that? Then to take responsibility. You know, we all have some extenuating circumstances as to why we have done the wrong things that we've done. You know, my, maybe my parents didn't like me, or, you know, my, my mother died when I was two, or, you know, my big brother molested me, or, you know, there was a war going on when I was five, or everybody else around me was doing it, or I was tired, or whatever. You know, we have so many uh, valid reasons why we don't behave properly. So many. Like, I can say, well, I was a hard-hearted fanatic in ISKCON because a lot of other people were hard-hearted fanatics and I was being trained that way. But, you know, not everybody was a hard-hearted fanatic. There were soft-hearted and compassionate 
uh, and deeply devotional people. And I could have been one of those. I didn't have to be a hard-hearted fanatic just because other people around me were. So to take responsibility. You know, in the, in the trials after World War II, the war crimes trials, people's main excuse was, I was following orders. It's, it's my superior's responsibility. But we also have some responsibility. And there were people who didn't follow orders. <laughs> There were people who said, no, I'm not going to put these innocent people into the gas chamber to die. So, responsibility. I am ultimately responsible for what I do. No matter how misinformed, how immature, no matter what bad association I had, no matter what I ate for breakfast, no matter how I misinterpreted the situation, I'm still responsible, and a real apology keeps that responsibility on me. Then remorse, to genuinely feel sorry. Now, this doesn't mean we should be overwhelmed with guilt. Guilt is useful for a minute or two. But it, it's more a, a, a real empathy for the other person. A real empathy, a sense of, wow, you know, this person went through some tribulation and difficulty emotionally, practically, because of my behavior. And I have some compassion. I have some karunaras about that. You know, if you have an apology again that it's all about me, well, I did this thing, and yeah, I actually did it, but I want you to forgive me so I can just go on with my life. That doesn't work. And then restitution. Now, restitution may not be possible on a physical platform. You know, if I insulted you in front of your friends 30 years ago, there is not really a kind of way I can restore. You know, there's a sort of, there's something called restorative justice. So, you know, if I broke your window because I'm playing baseball out in your front lawn, I can pay to fix your window. That's pretty simple. I can arrange for it to be fixed. You know, if, if I had a hit and run and killed your daughter, I can't bring your daughter back, even if I give you a lot of money. I mean, there's restitution is, is a difficult one, but there can at least be restitution in, in explaining that we have shared values and that I really care about you and I really care about your happiness. Um, that on my part, whatever, however you may deal with me, whether you restore a relationship with me or not, whether you care about my happiness or not, I, I really care about your happiness. So I, I make a, a... But if I can offer a kind of restitution, then I certainly should. But not in the sense of buying my way out of the problem. Not, well, I'm going to buy you a dozen roses and therefore, you know, everything's uh, fine. It, it's not... I'm not paying for a relationship. That's prostitution. Prostitution, I, I pay somebody for a relationship. And it's just a business deal. So restitution and an apology is not like that. It's not, it's not a business deal. And then repetition, that I do my best not to repeat it. And I, for some things, that's easier than others. I mean, some things I can say, all right, I'm not going to play baseball in your front yard. That's, that's very clear. But if it's that, you know, I wasn't considerate of your feelings when you were tired, you know, I, I might forget that again. So in some cases, repetition is, is I'll do my best to improve. I'll do my best to be more aware. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to be you know, uh, more considerate. And the kind of things I'll sometimes say is, look, will you point out to me when I'm doing I don't want to do this again. I, it's something that I see is, is hurtful to you. So I would like to stop, but I may not always be aware when I'm doing it. So if you could point it out to me. And people are hesitant to do that. You know, they're hesitant to point out to you when you're hurting their feelings because... When we point out to someone that they're hurting our feelings, we become vulnerable. Uh, but sometimes you may have to say, you know, let, please let me know when I'm doing it again. Uh, and I will try to stop and to try to become aware, aware of this. And Srila Prabhupada writes in this purport that Krishna conscious persons are expected to do this. They're expected to adjust their envy and malice, their anger and their malice towards one another. That's what they're expected to do. And if we don't do that, Prabhupada says, we will become vanquished without finishing the mission of human life. 
Well, we see, uh, I, I read a really nice post on social media, I think yesterday, that one devotee was writing, I don't really care what your position is on different issues, I care how nicely you deal with one another. And I think that such is the case for many of us. In the Shastra, there's three kinds of discussion. One is Vada, Jalpa, and, and another is uh, Bitanda. So Jalpa is a discussion that's civil. Well, we're dealing with each other in a respectful way. Jalpa is where we're trying to force another person to our point of view. And Bitanda is we're trying to destroy the other person's point of view, even if we don't have anything better to replace it with. So Jalpa and Bitanda are, are violent. They're malicious. They're, they're hurtful, especially Bitanda. They're hurtful to another. And we are expected to have civilized dealings with one another. And when we fail in that, which will happen, as Prabhupada says here, sometimes, even among those who are the personal associates of Vishnu, then we need to practice uh, apology and forgiveness. And sometimes both people have to apologize, and sometimes both people have to forgive. And forgiveness is not contingent upon apology. I can forgive people who haven't apologized, and I can apologize to people who do not forgive. Ultimately, I am apologizing to others to please the Lord, and I am forgiving others to please the Lord. So we have uh, very few minutes for questions and comments. This is a very involved, difficult subject that we could talk about for a, a very, very, very long time. Uh, so there's, there's no way that we're going to, to go over everything here. What was the author's name about, again, about apology? Um, Jack Kador, K-A-D-O-R. Uh, and the book is called Effective Apology. I have another book on apology also, which I also I found also very helpful, although this one I felt was the best. Um, and the times when I become aware that I need to apologize, I, I go back and reference these books and and really check and really take some time to see that my apology is genuine. Uh, let me look up the other one. Yeah, it's called Effective Apology, Mending Fences, Building Bridges, and Restoring Trust. K-A-D-O-R, John K-A-D-O-R. And the other one is called On Apology by Aaron Lazare, L-A-Z-A-R-E. Uh, both of these are very best-selling books. So On Apology by Aaron Lazare is also an excellent book. Some may perhaps I may appeal more to one of the others. I wouldn't be surprised if there's like videos, you know, based on these books, you know, some short videos that one could watch and get the, the gist of it. But it's, yeah, they're, they're, they're extremely helpful. Mother, when you mentioned that um, guilt wasn't particularly useful, but yet we see that sometimes in great personalities like um, King Yudhishthir, he felt, you know, terribly guilty after the battle of Kurukshetra that why did this all have to happen for me to be put back on the throne? Um, is there... Well, can't that guilt within us be also valuable? Maybe it's Krishna or a it, voice it, from within... It can be valuable very briefly. Um, it can be value, valuable if it acts simply as this recognition factor. You know, it, it triggers this recognition. I did something wrong. If we don't have the capacity to recognize we did something wrong, then we're, you know, a psychopath or a sociopath. So we, we need to be able to recognize that we've done something wrong. But once we recognize it, to stay in guilt tends to be Tamagoon, and it wasn't good that Yudhisthira stayed in guilt. He wasn't able to function in his service. It was, it was a serious problem that needed to be rectified. It, it wasn't... Nobody said to Maharaj Yudhisthira, why don't you just stay in guilt for the rest of your life? And it, it was greatly impeding everything. It's, it's very, very much Tamagoon. 
It's not humility. It's not remorse. It's, remorse is another step. But it is, it is a necessary step, but it should be brief. It's like, you know, if you touch something hot, the burning sensation gives you the impetus to remove your hand. But it's not that you just keep your hand on the stove and let all the skin burn off. You know, that, that's not helpful to anybody. And, you know, wallowing in, in, in guilt is, is not... It, it's also very self-centered. It, it's not about... Guilt is not about empathy. It's not about connection. It's not about restoring a relationship. It's all about me. And it's hating myself. Whereas Krishna says that perfection is to love ourselves, to relish and rejoice in the self. So this... Again, it has a very brief impetus. It's necessary, and that, that's it. It's not, it's not meant to be a, a long-term state. It, in fact, it's quite damaging if it's a long-term state. But we are, we are meant to act on it, you know. We're meant to like, oh, I did something wrong, now what? <laughs> you know, now, now what? What's my next step? Not, because when you wallow in it, it just becomes self-flagellation, you know. I'm a bad person, I'm a terrible person, I'm such an idiot, I'm such a fool, why did I do that, oh my God. You know, and that, that's not what we want. I mean, just think about it, think about someone who's offended you, do you want them just to wallow in guilt? I don't. I mean, if I think of people who've really offended me or betrayed me, I don't want them to just sit around feeling guilty all the time. I want them to do something to try to fix the relationship. And if they come to me just, you know, outpouring guilt, it it actually becomes kind of repulsive. You know, just like, I've had people do that. And it, it's, it's very much about them, you know. It, it's a false apology. Oh, Ramila, I feel so bad. I'm so terrible. I'm such a fallen devotee. I have no good qualities. I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other thing. It's like... I don't want to hear them putting themselves down. You know, it, then it just puts me in a position where I say to them, no, actually, you're a good person. And then again, it's all about them. It's not about what they did to hurt me and how I felt. And it doesn't restore the relationship, you know. No. There's there's a flip side to that. Okay. And uh, I found it in Jamuna's book. Mm. Uh, There was an incident in Mayapur where she, she approached someone that had done something to her. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. And she brought it up to the person. And his response. Somebody needs to mute himself. I'm hearing. Now, Lakshmi, you need to mute yourself. Yeah, I muted her. Okay. Okay. So, when she brought it up to the person... His response was he, he he just couldn't think about things like that that he had done in the past or he wouldn't be able to go on in Krishna consciousness. So some people have a problem introspecting and, and Bhakti Tirtamaraj told me that directly. That some people he knew were afraid to introspect. So what could you possibly do with such a person other than stay away from them and not give them power? Exactly. Um, well, we're not the ones who give them power. Krishna gives them power, or not. Um, I think people are afraid to introspect because they're afraid they will get stuck in guilt. Because getting stuck in guilt is excruciatingly painful. It's, 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 it's just excruciating to hate ourselves. And nobody wants to do that long term it is it's not a nice place to be so 
my own personal conviction is that if we teach people that guilt should be a temporary thing that should push you to action and that once you take action you'll actually feel relieved if you take action if you use that that momentary guilt to take action to rectify things you know it, it's like if i notice i have some tomato sauce on my hand then i can clean it off and i'll feel better it it, it just it's such a simple thing the other thing is to and this is something that i personally have have been guilty of uh myself is this drive for a kind of artificial perfection you know trying to push myself and thereby also pushing others to be be at some sort of artificial level of perfection where we don't want to introspect and we don't want to admit that we're really fallen and make terrible terrible decisions you know to to have a culture of humility among the devotees where it's totally okay to really 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 be honest about the fact that i am a mercy case only i mean just the other day i don't remember how it came up but one devotee was talking about how we have to really just meditate on krishna and i said yeah you know we have to obsess about krishna instead of obsessing over like getting a pair of shoes and she looked at me and she said well you never do that and i thought well actually i have done that but she didn't want to hear that i've ever done that it wasn't it messed up her view of of devotees so you know she just refused to acknowledge that i could have some kind of fault and it put a a burden on me that was very uncomfortable whereas if i could just say yeah you know i've obsessed about all kinds of stupid things and just be able to laugh at it i i and i think this sort of mood in iskon can help people to be willing to be introspective without fear that wow you know i i've really messed up and sometimes it may be a big really maybe sometimes i've messed up in a really major 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 way and let me go fix it um so ramanand is asking when we forgive isn't that we lose our desire for justice or is that not our concern uh, the answer is generally it's not our concern and so we shouldn't really desire something that's not our concern we're we're servants and as servants we have our sphere of service and we have things that are not our sphere of service krishna says to do someone else's duty even perfectly becomes a vehicle of fear so it's not my business to make sure that everybody in the universe gets justice thank god it's a big job it's not mine it's yamaraj's or it's krishna's or it's the yamadudas and you know if you really want to be a yamaduda i'm sure they have a lot of uh, job openings but that's you know that that's not our aim our aim is to become residents of goloka vrindavan now if someone does a criminal act to me then it is my duty to god to report it to the authorities that's my duty to god if somebody you know assaults me or rapes me or robs me i am supposed to report that to the police if somebody just insults me or offends me uh that i'm not that i'm not concerned about that that's not my business i can just say krishna please let this person learn in a joyful way but it isn't my business to make sure that they learn their lesson and that they get punished and uh, krishna will take care of that that it's it, it really isn't my job and better to just do my job yes i should let go of that desire for justice if it's not my job how can anyone make any progress without introspection they can't they can't that's not possible what is the source of malice sometimes it's hard to understand the levels of malice that come about in this planet and i feel very hard and very sad and sometimes this harms my faith the source of malice is primarily insecurity it's it's primarily a sense that you know i don't have enough that i'm not enough that i'm not worthy that i'm i'm not relevant i'm not meaningful i'm not important i'm not loved 
and therefore I have to harm somebody else or wish somebody else harm in order to get enough for myself. You know, there's not enough to go around of whatever it is, recognition, respect, money, food, whatever, and and I don't have enough, there isn't enough to go around, I don't have enough, and so I have to make sure that I get it from you by trying to force you to do these things for me or trying to take it from you or, or something like that. And so the cure is always that I am enough, I'm a soul, I'm part of God, I am enough, I am worthy as a soul, that Krishna loves me, that Krishna's yoga shame of aham yaham, Krishna's taking care of me, as Krishna says, new yoga shame atmavan, to be established in the self. Now, you might say then, well, how is it that these great devotees sometimes feel like that? And it's because in this material world, the modes of nature are there, the modes of nature are varieties of I'm not enough. I'm a body and mind, I'm not enough, I'm not worthy, there's a scarcity, I'm not going to get what I need. They're in different flavors, and you know, 8,400,000 different flavors of that. And our body and mind is a product of these modes, and therefore is affected by the modes. And therefore these thoughts and feelings of insufficiency and lack and fear, attachment, fear and anger, are going to be flowing through the body, just like Sometimes we're alert and sometimes we're sleepy. Sometimes we're healthy and vigorous and sometimes we're, we're uh, sickly. And sometimes we're really smart and we figure things out and other times we can't remember where we put our bead bag. And in the same way, you know, these different lusts will go through the body. Uh, as long as we have a body, there'll be sexual lust, there'll be anger, there'll be malice, there'll be greed. And I think we're offline. We are online. Anyway, those things will come, so we shouldn't be so astonished that sometimes even great souls get bewildered by them. All right, I think we should stop here. We've gone uh, nine minutes over. So thank you very much, Sheila Prabhupada.